Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Last time we looked at the genealogy of the godly line of Seth. And it's a record, let me remind you, of God's faithfulness, not of man's faithfulness. God is the one who kept his people and who continued to keep that line so that his promise of salvation, the seed of the woman, would come in his time. Because as soon as Adam and Eve fell, they received from God the promise of the Savior. He gave them mercy. He covered their shame. And he showed them how to draw near to him in regular worship by way of sacrifice. And we know they taught these things to their children because we see their children bringing sacrifice, worshiping God, calling upon his name. And we know God continued to bring his word to mankind because he spoke to Cain. From heaven, admonishing Cain that Cain had come to God the wrong way. And that's why he wasn't accepted and that Cain needed to resist sin and come to God the way his brother Abel did through faith. And so God would have continued to speak to his people, not only directly, but we know from the New Testament that there were preachers of the word in the world before the flood of Noah. We know Enoch was a preacher of the word. We know Noah was a preacher of the word. So they had God's word. They had the sacraments. They had worship. They had his mercy and grace. They had the institution of marriage and family. God had not forgotten his people, though they had fallen and they had sinned. God's word, God's means of grace were freely offered to all mankind before the flood. But as we will see in our text today, that while God did preserve that line through whom the promised seed of the woman would come, the families of this world, the families of the church, the visible body that called upon his name, as we saw in the line of Seth, one by one, They fell away. One by one, they got absorbed into the world. They turned away from God. They chose this world over the Lord. And this teaches us, as we looked at a little bit last week, that we cannot presume upon God's promises. That we who are the covenant people, the corporate body, the church, we can't presume upon the covenant. Children, your parents' faith can't save you. You have to believe. It's a great blessing to have believing parents and to be in a believing family. But if you don't believe, those blessings will turn into judgments. And parents, yesterday's grace can't save you. You can't presume because, oh, God did this in my life yesterday, that you don't have to live for him anymore. You have to work out your salvation. You have to live by faith. Today is the day of salvation. Today's the day you put off the old man. You put on the new. You get into his word. You call upon his name. We live for him every day. We prove that we are the elect and we have faith by living it out. And we have to do that. God doesn't do that for you. So we don't want to presume upon the covenant. Because all of these covenant families in this line walked away from God. They didn't actively use those means of grace that he gave them to call upon his name, to to keep walking with him. And we need to do that, beloved. We need to starve again the old man and feed the spirit because by the end of our text, we're going to see it. There is one man left. There's only one covenant family left. They, all the rest fell away. One family, one man, Noah and his family, everyone else, Turned away from God, 
rejected his means of grace, rejected the gospel that was being proclaimed by preachers, by God himself from heaven. They turned away from him and they brought judgment upon themselves. And so this morning, beloved, I want us to look at our only hope in this world, God's grace, God's gospel, that we would look to God because the power of sin is impossible to be overcome apart from the grace of God. The power of sin that's in the world, that's in the devil, and that's in every one of our hearts, what the Bible calls the sinful nature, the flesh. We can't defeat it except by God and by his grace. And this is something, one of the most, I think it's one of the most important truths that you can really get your hands on that will really empower you, that will really enable you to give all the praise and honor and glory to God. Our theme for the service, total depravity. When once we get that, then we'll be in the right position to really humble ourselves, to really look for God, to look to God for everything because we'll be able to say, I can't do it. But God can, God has promised to, and I can believe in him and know that he will save me. And so let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, again, we thank you that though we have no ability to resist sin or turn from it, you give that ability to your people and that we have the armor of God. We have the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, but all of the armor and all of the weapons are from you. And so help us this morning to humble ourselves, to recognize the deadness of sin that we would still be in if it were not for your grace and to recognize, Lord God, and to take up the means of salvation, looking not to ourselves, not to our use, not to our faithfulness, looking only to you, that you would keep your promises to all who believe in the Lord Jesus. And so do that, Father, this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy and perfect word. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed Flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. May the Lord establish his word in our hearts this morning, I pray. Well, this is one of those passages, right, that have a lot of controversial and different interpretations. And I plan on getting into that a little bit here this morning. In fact, I have an outline that I don't like and I keep changing it. So I don't really know what I'm going to do this morning right now. I'll just come clean right off the bat. There's so much to say about this text. But what I want us to notice in the clear, you know, let's start with the big in the context. There is a clear Uh, judgment that's happening. Man is sinning and becoming and showing himself to be utterly sinful. And that's clear in the text. And 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 God pronounces certain judgments because of man's bad behavior. And that's clear in the text. And so before we get into the details that a lot of Christians and theologians and good people on all sides disagree on, let's, let's keep the major portion here that we can all agree on. Man is doing something wrong, something awful. So much so that God is going to destroy him. And that is the overarching doctrine of the text. And so I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the way of sin. I want you to notice the way of sin. We've already seen since the fall, man has a fallen nature. He is sinful. And in his sin, what man does is he uses the good things of God. This is what sin is. It takes the good gifts of God. Sin couldn't exist without the good things of God. And it corrupts them. And it uses them for its own purposes, for its own purposes apart from God, without any acknowledgement or desire to glorify him or to submit to him first. Sin takes the good things of God and it wants to use them for self. And we've got to confess that we're all tempted to do this. In fact, we all do this at some degree or another. Not just in our bad works, but even in our good works. We never perfectly do anything with absolute subjection to God, wanting to honor Him. I always have a little selfishness, a little pride, a little vanity. Let's recognize that, right? The Bible says, if we say right now that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, so that we know, and we must always know that we always have sin in us, always have, again, little pride, little vanity, little lust, little anger, little selfishness, whatever, it's always there. That's why Paul says, you know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul, the apostle, inspired of God to write almost half the New Testament, felt constantly the wretchedness of being a sinner. And that's what we all feel all of our lives until God calls us home and we will be without sin. I think that's the most glorious thing in heaven. The moment you open your eyes in heaven, You won't have a single envious thought, a single lustful thought, uh, unrighteous anger, any of it. It will be gone. You will perfectly love God. You will perfectly love your neighbors, your family members who you will remember and you will know in heaven because it's you that's there. And to me, that's the most glorious thing, the most glorious promise. But what, what sin does is it takes the good gifts of God and it corrupts them. We need to recognize that we all have that tendency in us. I think sometimes as Christians, maybe we've grown grown up in in churches that weren't reformed. You know, when I first came to the Lord, and I did. I was converted to God from a very ungodly lifestyle, as I've told parts of my testimony before. And I was a Christian, and I was living for the Lord. And my life had changed. Let me tell you, it had really changed. And I remember walking up to the garage. I was living in my parents' home still, trying to make amends for the things that I had done. I mean, I had to go to jail for a while. I was on probation. There was a lot of things I had to do. But I remember walking up to the garage one day thinking, boy, today would be a good day to die because I haven't sinned in weeks. (laughs) And I believed that. 
I didn't really look at the thoughts of my heart, the desires of my mind and of my will. I wasn't looking at sin at that level. I was just looking at, man, have I changed? I'm not going out getting drunk anymore. I'm not breaking laws. I'm not looking to have uh, sinful relationships with girls. I am living. I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying. I'm going. I mean, my life really had changed. But I was looking really on the surface. And we, we need to recognize as we see in this text, that we always have this sinful nature. Even we who are redeemed, even we who really do love the Lord, really do repent, really do believe, really do good works, but not perfect works. We still have this sin nature in us. And so what I want you to see in this text, look at it in verse 1. When it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Okay, so from Adam to Noah, we get 1,000 plus years, 1,056 years, I believe, when Noah is born. And when Noah's 500 years old, he has Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Obviously not all at his 500th year. They're not triplets. But he begins to have them when he's 500. And so it's 1,556 years or something like that. 1,500 plus years after the creation. But what we get in chapter 6 now, we're going back. And God's looking at the flavor of the last thousand years or so. When men began to multiply. So a couple of hundred years in. When there's a lot of people on the earth. Which by the way was a grace of God. Right? Did human beings deserve to multiply at that point? What was the penalty in the garden? The day you eat, you will die. And they did die spiritually that day. And they did become mortal physically that day. And death was in them. And now they were going to physically die. But God didn't kill them. God enabled them to live. And God enabled them to be fruitful and to be multiplied. And each one before he died, and we saw the whole genealogy, and he died, and he died, and he died. And yet before that, he had sons and daughters. He had sons and daughters. He had sons and daughters. God's grace. God's common grace. Not saving grace per se. It doesn't mean they're all saved. But God kept man alive when he didn't deserve to live. God enabled man to be fruitful and multiply when he didn't deserve to do that. God enables the line of Cain to develop culture and inventions and technologies when they didn't deserve any of that. And now, marriage, when no one deserves the delights and pleasures of marriage, and there are those. What we see in this text is a corruption of these things. Daughters are born to them. They're having children. That's good. But what do they do? Do they take those children and honor God and glorify God? No. They take those children and they have these marriages. And whatever, we're going to look more at verse 2, but whatever is going on in verse 2, it's sinful. That's clear. Because verse 3, God pronounces judgment on account of verse 2. So before we get into who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men and what's going on, look at the overall text. Verse 2 shows a sinful group of marriages so sinful that God says in verse 3 my spirit's not going to strive strive with man anymore man in his sin I'm not going to put up with it anymore 120 years and we'll look at what that means too because there's controversy on that but there's sin going on these marriages are inherently sinful in other words these men were not looking at these women saying oh this is the woman that I can glorify God with what does the what is the one thing that's mentioned they were beautiful They were beautiful. That's how they chose their wives. There's nothing wrong with beauty. Beauty is a gift of God. The Bible talks about women who were beautiful saints of God. Sarah, who was so beautiful that Abraham's constantly lying about her because he's afraid people are going to kill him to get to her. 
Even when she was 90 years old, she was beautiful. Esther, who was so beautiful that she becomes the queen of Persia, these were blessings of God. There's nothing wrong with that. But when beauty becomes the only thing, when it becomes the highest thing, when, when, when we do that with any of God's good gifts, right? Whether it's beauty, whether it's wealth, wealth is good, it's good to use wealth. Whenever we make it the highest thing, we've just committed idolatry. And that's what these men are doing in this text. They are choosing the daughters who are beautiful, as many as they chose. They're not looking to God's will. They're not considering what God would have them do. They're not considering the woman that would most help them to glorify God and sanctify them in their marriage. They're looking at what's going to make them feel the best. Who's the girl that they think's the hottest, that they can have, that gives them the most, I don't know, pride, whatever. That's what it was about. They were looking and they were marrying people rather than having marriage, the image of God, what it was supposed to be. They're making it about themselves and their own pleasure and their own righteousness. And that's clear from the text. Again, we don't even have to to understand daughters of men, sons of God, and recognize these are sinful marriages because God pronounces his judgment in verse 3. And so I just want to exhort you who are seeking marriage or, you know, your older teenagers in your 20s, whatever, when you're starting to think about this, you young people, make sure you are seeking first and foremost in a spouse to glorify God. Your purpose doesn't change whether you're single or married. Your created purpose from God. It's to glorify him. It's to enjoy him forever. So in seeking a spouse, you should be seeking someone with whom you can glorify God and with whom you can enjoy him forever. This is the way of sin. Secondly, I want you to notice the heart of man. I want you to notice the heart of man. Okay, so what's going on in this text? There are three major ways of understanding verse 2. And it goes all the way back to the time of Christ and even before that in the rabbinical writings. Three major ways. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? Well, there are two groups of people being distinguished here, right? And everybody agrees it's not the same. Not the same group of people. There are different. These sons of God are not the daughters of men. And these daughters of men are not the sons of God. All the views agree on that. Okay? The first view that's been taken, again, by rabbis and others, is that what you have here are royalty, sons of God. And the Bible sometimes speaks of royalty as sons of God or even gods. So these royal, this royal line are marrying commoners, daughters of just men, ordinary men, commoners. And you ask, well, what's wrong with that? And why would God judge that? And, you know, that's pretty much the major question against that view. But that view then says, well, it's these royal, these royal figures are not just taking wives. They're, taking, they're making harems for themselves. They're being like Lamech. In not, not Lamech Noah's dad, but Lamech in chapter 4, who takes two wives. The very first man who corrupted marriage. And they're saying, that, well, that's what's going on here. You have these, this, these line of great royal you know, kings and, and, and just taking these lowly women, common women, and just bringing them into their harems. And, of course, God would judge that if that is the case. The problem is nothing's been mentioned up till now of governments or of royalty or of different classes of people or anything like that. All we've had is the line of Cain in chapter 4 and the line of Seth. In chapter 5, in the line of Cain, culmination in wickedness, Lamech boasting about he kills a young man for just wounding him. And he, he takes two wives. He's a, he's a braggart. He's a boastful. He's a killer. And then in, in Seth's line, we have Enoch, who, who walked with God. And Lamech, who names his children after the promise of God. So that's all we've been getting so far. Nothing about human government. So that makes it difficult 
to really uh, back up that view. It's probably the minority of the three. Fewest theologians and exegetes believe that this is about, you know, sons of God are the kings taking and multiplying harems for themselves. And that's why God judged the world, which would be a reason for him to judge the world. The second view, and and this would be the most popular view, certainly among evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, even some Reformed Christians, would be that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are human beings. Okay? And it's got some things going for it. The phrase, sons of God, is used to refer clearly to angels, probably three times in the book of Job, once in Daniel, once or twice in the Psalms, son, son of God, sons of God, clearly angelic beings, not human beings. So in this case, the sons of God would be the angels. The daughters of men would be just humans, right? And that in this view, they have these children who are, verse 4, these giants. Um, and that's because they are half angel and half human. Um, and that's the view, again, that's being taken. There's A few other things that could be said uh, for this view. The book of Enoch, the intertestamental book, it's not scripture, says that, takes that view, that it was angels who came down and and mated with human women. Um, And they had these children who are the giants. In fact, the book of Enoch says that the children they had were 3,000 cubits tall. That's almost a mile. Okay, the book of Enoch is not scripture. doesn't mean there aren't true things in it. Jude refers to Enoch about some of the true things that were in it. But it also says that the women that they mated with became sirens. So, I mean, it's written during the time of the Greeks and the Greek gods and goddesses and said sirens, you know. So most people sort of write off the book of Enoch at that point. I don't think, it's, I don't think this view is correct, and let me tell you why. Uh, first of all, angels have not been mentioned at all yet in Scripture. Up through chapter, the end of chapter 5, nothing's been mentioned that there are such a thing as angels. We haven't learned that yet. Um, also, Jesus clearly says that angels don't marry. He says that in all three of the synoptic gospels. He says that in the resurrection, human beings will be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. They don't marry. And the text doesn't say they just had sex with them. The text says they took wives. That phrase in Hebrew is always used to take wives. It's never used for forcible rape or for forcing a woman. It's always used to take a wife for yourself or to take a wife for your son. And it says they took wives, and Jesus says they don't do that. The other problem is that angels are spirits. They have no physicality to them. Angels are pure spirits, the Bible says. God makes his angels winds, flames. Now, they can take human form. And sometimes we even see them eat. And they take human form, and they even fool people. Sometimes people think that the angel is a human being. You can think of Joshua when he sees that man with the sword. Are you for us or against us? And it was the captain of the Lord's army, obviously an angelic being. Jonathan just thought he was a man. Uh, Joshua, I'm sorry, Joshua. But that, that happens with Abraham, a few other places where people think angels are men. The problem with that, beloved, is that even if, and this would be the view, well, the view is, well, see, these are demons, and demons can possess people. And so these demons come down and possess human men and they have sex with human women and they create these great sort of monstrous creatures. The problem with that is if an angel, a spirit, possesses a man, a human, the whole body is still the man. The hand is, it's not like the angel now has an angel hand. He's possessing a human body with a human hand. 
He's possessing a human body with a, a, a human mind, a human head, and with human sperm. There's no such thing as angel sperm. They, they're not physical. So you can't have an angel, part angel DNA, part human DNA. If the angel takes possession of a human, he's taking possession of a human. And everything that he does is from that human. And so if they would have children, it would be entirely the human man's child. Not angelic. Angels are spirits. They don't reproduce. There's nothing in Scripture that says they're able to do that. In fact, Jesus seems to say that they're not. We don't read about them having families and so forth. The other problem with that view, beloved, is that the giants are actually not part, are not the children of the angels. I want you to notice that. Look at verse 4. Very closely look. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Do you see the text is very clear. The giants were already there when the angels, if they are angels, and men began to reproduce. So whatever the giants are, they're already there. The only product of the unions of the son of God and and daughters of men is the end of verse 4. They bore children to them. Those were, their children were, the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Not giants. Mighty men of old, men of renown. By the way, that phrase, mighty men, is used more of David's army than any other place in the Bible. David's mighty men, his list of mighty men. David had 30 mighty men. It's the same word. Mighty men, men of war. Men of renown, men of the name, literally, we'll come back to that. My final problem with this view is, if this is angels coming down and preying upon human women, right? Which would be what they would be doing. We have no defense against this angelic race that would be coming down and like dominating poor, you know, dust humans. And yet, in the rest of the text, God's only judging man. How could God judge man for being the victim of angelic lust? How could God judge human beings who have no defense against these cosmic creatures who come down and prey upon them? And God's going to judge man for that? I just, I, I, I can't see that in this view. I think when we look at the context, what have we seen? The line of Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and how wicked they were. The line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5 and how godly they were. Enoch and Lamech. We've only been seeing two groups of people. There are no nations. There are no races. Line of Cain, line of Seth. And now we get another distinction in verse 1 of chapter 6. Sons of God and daughters of men. What else could it be? But the the line of Seth, the godly line, the sons of God, which the Bible says when we are believers, we are the children of God. And the, the daughters of men, the daughters of mere men. What scripture says when you, when you are acting like uh, the world, you're just flesh. You're, you're not spirit. You're just men. So many places in the Bible that talk about this and that say, Old and New Testament, that it's the believers, it's the believing community, it's the church that is the children of God. Let me give you some verses. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1. God says to Israel, you are the sons of the Lord your God. To Israel, not to Egypt. They weren't the sons of God. You are the sons of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall not cut yourselves or make baldness for the dead. And so don't do these super superstitious things because you're my sons. Right? When God sends Moses into Egypt, what does he say? Go to Pharaoh and say, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may worship me. Israel's my son. 
let him go. And then Hosea recalls that. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The sons of God are the people of God. Those who believe in God. God tells, uh, sorry, uh, also in uh, Psalm 73, if I had said I would speak thus, I would have been untruth to the generation of your children, of your sons. In Psalms, in Proverbs, in Deuteronomy, in Hosea, the sons of God are always the people of God. And in the New Testament, we see that very clearly as well. Romans 8.14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We are the sons of God, right? 1 John 3, 2, we are the children of God. Beloved, he says, beloved, now we are the children of God. The church, not the world. In fact, when the, when the Israelites, like Paul says in Galatians 3, 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are the adopted sons of God. We begin in the family of the devil. Remember, Jesus said that to the Jews who weren't believing in him. You are of your father, the devil, Jesus said to them. In fact, when Moses prophesies how Israel is going to turn away from God, listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 32. He says they're going to become not his sons. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his sons because of their blemish. They are a perverse and crooked generation. They're not his sons because they've turned away from him. That's what happens when we turn away from God. Remember when God says to the prophet, name your son Lo-Ami, not my people. Because you're not my people anymore. That's, that is the distinction between the two groups of people in the world. The children of God and the children of either mere men or of Satan. And in fact, when Paul addresses the Corinthian church for sins in their church, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, You are still flesh. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not fleshly? And listen to this. And walking like men, like mere men. Like the daughters of men. The daughters of mere men. Men without the spirit. Men without God. And so this is the problem, beloved. This is the reason for the, the judgment in verse 3. You had the church. You had the people of God going out and marrying people who were not believers. They were putting their happiness in this world before God. They were taking the good gifts of God. Maybe the greatest gift of God. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Excellent wife, virtuous wife, prudent wife, all these wonderful passages about how good it is. And yet these men, these covenant children men, these men of the church were going out like Samson. Where did Samson constantly go to find a woman? To the Philistines. How did that work for Samson? How about Solomon? The Bible says that his wives turned his heart against the Lord. 1 Kings 11 his foreign wives, his unbelieving wives, turned his heart against the Lord. That's what happens. That's what happened to Israel over and over again. They married with unbelievers and they became like them. Remember when Balaam, the one who rides, rides the donkey, and the donkey has to rebuke him? And he's, he's paid to curse Israel, but he couldn't curse Israel. God wouldn't let him. But do you remember after he's not able to curse Israel, he taught Balak who sent him, well, just give your daughters to the Israelites and take their daughters for your sons and God will judge them. You won't have to get me to curse them. Do that. And that happened. And there was this great judgment at Baal Peor when the Israelites began to mingle with the peoples of the land whom God said they should be separate from. Over and over again, even after the captivity, when they go back into the land, remember Ezra is pulling out his beard because they're the children of Israel are coming back into the land and they're marrying the unbelievers again. It happens over and over again. 
Deuteronomy warned them in Deuteronomy 7.3, you shall not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their son, nor take their daughters for your son. For, listen to this, Deuteronomy 7.4, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Beloved, how can we think that God is going to bless us when we choose a spouse in sinful disobedience against God. I tell young people this all the time. Make sure that your, your potential spouse is a believer. They don't have to be a member of Providence. They don't have to be in the Reformed Church. Go and find yourself a good Pentecostal woman like I did. They just have to be a believer. And then you, young man, can lead them into the Reformed Church. And Rick and I will be here to help you do that. They just have to believe. But beloved, you have to pick the person that's going to be closest to you. If you put them before God, how's God going to bless that? And I know, I know there are people in this church. And that's happened to me. Maybe maybe you didn't, didn't do it on purpose. You didn't know. You were never taught this. And now you're married to an unbeliever. Well, God, if if you did it on purpose, even then God can forgive your sin. But God can even give you his grace in that relationship. What you can't do now, and sometimes we're tempted to do this. Well, I got into this sinful marriage, and so now I'll seek a sinful divorce. And, and with one sin, you're going to correct another sin. That, that never works. If you sinned in your marriage, repent and live with your spouse in a godly way. Pray for them. Continue to serve God. Maybe God will save your spouse as you repent. Maybe God will deliver you and cause your spouse to leave. That happens too in Scripture. But God will enable you to live the Christian life, even with an unbelieving spouse. Again, whether you did it on purpose, whether you didn't know, whether the person professed to be a believer and then later apostatizes, God can still bless you. But what I really want to do for you young people, you have no business dating unbelievers. None. No business whatsoever. Don't even look at them. They're not, they're not a possible spouse for you. Because when you do that, you choose the things of this world over God. You choose the flesh over the spirit. And you think somehow God's going to bless that rebellion. He may, because he's that good. But he probably is going to cause you to walk away from God. Because that's what happened to Israel over and over and over again. And so, beloved, I want you to notice the patience of God. Verse 3. The patience of God. Even in the midst of these, this apostasy, even in the midst of the church becoming like the world, corrupting itself, turning away from God, the children of believers marrying unbelievers for their own satisfaction and joy without concern for God's spirit first. God says in verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. God's spirit in his church in a special way. For he, notice this, he is indeed flesh. God isn't just saying, oh, man's a creature. He's saying he is indeed flesh. Here's the first use of flesh in a sinful way. It doesn't mean he's physical. Here is man showing himself to be without the spirit, if I can say that. Flesh. Remember when Jesus said, that which is of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the spirit is spirit. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and eternal life. The flesh profits nothing. This is our sinful flesh. We can't do anything. In fact, God's judgment on the sinful flesh is, verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you realize when God looked at the human race, there wasn't a single 
element, not a single molecule of pure, untainted goodness. Not a single thought in anybody's head. Not a single intention or purpose. When God looked at the human race and looked for a reason to save it, just one element that wasn't corrupted with sin, there was nothing. Not a single thing. And yet, God still says in verse 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. He is indeed flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Okay, we got to go quick now. Two views on this. Some people think God is limiting man's lifespan to 120 years because that does seem to happen pretty quickly after the flood. Others see this as God giving man another 120 years and then the judgment's going to come. So this is like Jonah preaching to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. So God says, basically, you get 120 years to turn away from these sins, to repent, to come back to me, and, and, I'll, and I won't bring judgment, right? I mean, God told Abraham, if he just finds 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, he wouldn't destroy it. If just a few of these families would have repented and began to live for God again and give their believing children to other believing children in marriage, God wouldn't have destroyed it. And I believe that's the view that's correct because we don't see the lifespan really going to 120 years for hundreds of years. Noah lives to be 950, his children over 600, his grandchildren over 400. Isaac, all the way down to Isaac, hundreds of years later, 180 Jacob, 147. And Moses ends up writing that the lives of a man really aren't 120. Nobody makes it that long. It's 70 or 80. That's our average lifespan, according to Moses, in Psalm 90 in 1500 B.C. And it's been the same ever since. And so I really see this as God saying you get 120 years. But what grace and what mercy when there was nothing good in man. And then we see God saying that he was sorry. And I want to close with this. I want, to, I want you to notice the grace of God. Fourth thing and last, I want you to notice the grace of God. Boy, I'm skipping a lot, but we're running out of time. It's always my enemy, the clock on the wall. I could say more about the giants. I'm going to save that for next time and what that is and whether or not that's the case. But what I want to notice here, again, is God's great sorrow as he sees the wickedness of man, and yet he delays And yet he doesn't bring judgment. There's no reason for him to not. There's nothing in man to not. And yet God delays and God God waits and God is long-suffering and patient. And that's the thing that I want us most to see in this text. Because so oftentimes people think that God's ready to get them. That God's going to judge you. That God is so quick to judge. And the opposite is true. There is no being in the universe. Neither angel nor man nor any other creature that even comes close to having the patience and the mercy and the long-suffering of God. I've heard it said by, I don't know who, once some theologian. He said, if you or I or the best angel, the best man, the most patient, the most loving, the most forgiving creature would be in charge of the universe for just an hour, the outcry of the sins of this world would be so great, you would bring judgment. You would destroy it all. But God delays. God is long so You know, the Bible uses phrases like this to describe God putting up with sin. It says that God bears our sins. God is burdened with our sins. Sin is pressing. The sin of God's people presses upon him. He's wearied with holding it and grieved by it and angry at it. And he notices every single one. Everyone. The blood of Abel cries out to him. And how much more the blood of everyone who has been killed or harmed unjustly, wickedly. And it's like a cacophony in heaven. 
The outcry for judgment. The martyrs under the altar crying out to God, how long until you avenge our blood? And God is patient and God is long-suffering. But don't think, don't think that that sin does not affect him. That's the incredible verses that we get in verses 6 and 7 where the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. By the way, the Septuagint, which often changes words because it can't write what it, the Septuagint were academics. They weren't really that religious who, who made that. It's a wonderful translation, an early witness to the scripture, but it's not scripture. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But they will change things. For example, it's the Septuagint who says gigantus for the Hebrew word Nephilim, which, says, which means nothing about giants. But gigantus, and, so, and then the, the, the Vulgate also uses gigantus, and so we get English giant. But the Septuagint who do, do, do that there, they change verse 6 to, and the Lord considered why he made man on the earth, and he thought about it. Because they can't make themselves say God's sorry. Because how could God be sorry? How could God, who knows all things, who, whose will is done perfectly, who is all-powerful, you know, we only regret things when we wish we wouldn't have done it. When we didn't know the outcome, it wasn't what we expected. We regret it. God knows all. God is in control of all. How could God be sorry? What is the scripture saying? God doesn't change. God doesn't repent. And yet it says again at the end of verse 7, I am sorry that I made them. The Septuagint there, I'm angry. Which is another problem, because how could God be angry? How could he change? How can we ascribe human passions to him? And what we need to understand here is God doesn't change. And exactly... Like we do. Emotions don't come upon God. God knows all. God is perfectly content in himself and at the same time fully angry with sin and at the same time sorry and grieved by sin. He's all those things at once because he is the perfect being. And what this text is telling us is that our sin matters and that righteousness in our lives matters to God. He cares about it. Every single rebellion, every single failure, every single time his law is not kept, which is the perfect law for man, for our lives, and for God, and for glory, God feels it, and he sees it, and he notices all of it, and he cares about it. And he is going to correct it. And in the meantime, when we live in this age of grace, in this age of long-suffering, let us never forget that God right now in heaven is bearing the sins of this world. He's not judging them. I'm not talking about in an atoning way, but he's putting up with them and not bringing his justice, which he wants to do. And the only thing that's stopping him is that he is merciful to people who don't deserve it. And this is the sorrow of God. But what I want you to notice is that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say Noah earned grace. Noah achieved grace. Noah worked grace. Noah did something by which God gave him grace. Noah found grace. Do you know why? Because God's grace found Noah and caused Noah to not fall away and to not turn away. And God in his patience and long-suffering who bears the sins, as it were, of the world will one day send his son not just to put up with sin but to take it on himself, to truly bear it 
until it's no more. God in his sorrow, in his long-suffering, in his grace, sends salvation. And we'll have to pick that up more, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who cares for us. We who are insignificant dust, who live but a moment compared to you, and yet you care for our lives. And all of the injustices and all of the wickednesses in this world burden you. You see them, you notice them, and you hate them, and you are grieved by them, and you are sorry. And Lord, we know we are ascribing human things to you, but there's real meaning there. And that again, our lives matter, and righteousness matters, and you're going to establish your salvation. You promised it, and you kept your promise When though no reason was in him, yet you preserved Noah, you gave him grace because you said you would save us from our sins through the seed of the woman. And we know he's come and he's already won the victory. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to live zealously for you, the God who so cares for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.